This is VLX number 128, Hosanna in the Highest. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina. My name is Father David Nix. This is the Padre Peregrino podcast found on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and Rumble. We are in Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 through 11. And VLX is the Patristic Bible Study and Ignatian Prayer Series online. God give you his peace, and nomine patris, sefiri, spiritu santi, amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patris, sefiri, et spiritu santi, amen. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus! from Nazareth of Galilee. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Just a few announcements for you, just two that I've already said before, so I'll try to make them quick. Trying to get off Y-O-U-T-U-B-E and switch over to R-U-M-B-L-E. So my suggestion, if you follow this VLX and RCT series, is to start following me on Apple Podcasts on the go, or if you'd like to do the video, to go to R-U-M-B-L-E. Certain algorithms I can't tip off here. And then also, I have this Red Rose Rescue Trial in New Jersey for our Peaceful Praying in A-B-O-R-T-I-O-N centers, and that is on March 10th. Uh, Kind of expect to get off, but if you don't see videos for about a month, it's because I'm in a Jersey jail, so you can pray for that. Please continue to pray for my mother who's in the hospital. And, you know, today, as we jump into VLX here, we are going to be very heavy on Father Lapide because he and the Church Fathers have so many amazing things linguistically to say about these Hebrew roots of Hosanna in the highest. However, I do want to say this. If you do the Jesuit Ignatian mental prayer way, I have a book to suggest you to suggest to you, and it is this. It is Practical Meditations for Every Day in the Year on the Life of Our Lord Jesus Christ. I got this off Amazon, but there's a better version off of Angelus Press. I know people today like to make fun of the Jesuits, but I think before Vatican II, they were the greatest religious order. And what's beautiful about this book right here is it follows the meditations of the season. Basically, these are old school Jesuits who give you the meditation that you can place yourself in, in the line of St. Ignatius of Loyola. So even though a lot of these meditations don't come from St. Ignatius of Loyola, they come from his faithful sons. I am recording this on Ash Wednesday here, about five days before it's going to be released. And uh, today, we start a certain season in this book where we actually follow all through Lent. And I want to give you an example how phenomenal these imaginative meditations are that come from the old school Jesuits. This is specifically on Ash Wednesday, and he has us meditate on two different things. The first thing that we read here is, And again, remember, in the imaginative way, we really do use our imagination. You place yourself there. And even though we focus mostly on Jesus and Mary and the gospel, what you're going to see, the old school Jesuits, even have you place yourself in the Garden of Eden. So for Lent, in this this season when we're supposed to be looking at 
first sin, original sin, our actual sins, and penance and how to come out of this, this book, the Old School Jesuit Meditation Book, has us specifically enter into this contrition and humility on today, Ash Wednesday. You might be listening to this a little bit after Ash Wednesday. But I want you to listen to the first meditation. It's titled, On the Requisite Dispositions for the Holy Time of Lent. And the first meditation is this. Represent to yourself Adam at the moment when after his condemnation he hears the humiliating words, Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Might see a different background, by the way. I'm staying at my parents to help out, and I just offered Mass in a different room. I'll go over to the uh, local FSSP parish, get some ashes on my head. That's why you don't see ashes on my head yet. But we just had this Jesuit tell us, Imagine Adam in the garden, hearing from God himself, Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. The very thing that you heard, probably last week by the time this is coming out, as the priest put ashes on your forehead. Now, I did this. I'm going to actually use this as my own meditation, these old Jesuit meditations for this season of Lent and Easter for me. And as the Jesuit had you do there, you were to imagine first Adam and Eve before the fall. I guess he didn't say that, but that's how I started my meditation. Imagine Adam and Eve before the fall and see them just drenched in glory, drenched in what we call, theologians say, is original justice. There was no suffering and there was even no concupiscence. In fact, the only temptation came from Satan, but Adam and Eve were actually given full strength to resist Satan. Now, what hit, what hit me while meditating on Adam and Eve here and this actual fall was all of the sin, disease, destruction, and discord of the world came in from woman talking too much and man not talking enough. Let me say that again. Original sin, which caused all the problems in the whole world, came from woman talking too much and man not talking enough. And then the second meditation these Jesuits have you meditate on is beg of God that he will deign to penetrate you with the feelings the church desires us to be inspired with today. So notice that the, the imaginative way of prayer is also theological. It's not just emotional. The first disposition requires humility. And I do want to read this to you. I know this isn't exactly on today's section, but again, because we're going to be so deep into Father Lapide in the Hosanna in the Highest, Jesus coming in to the temple, I do want to read you a little bit more from how the Jesuits, even doing the imaginative way of prayer, had you meditate. And so the first thing we ask for in Lent is humility. The consideration, that's a big part of the Ignatian mental way of prayer, is we look at this term, remember, O man, that dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. Who, itter, who uttered these bitter words, asked the Jesuit who wrote this? The answer is God himself, nearly 6,000 years ago. To whom did he address them? To Adam, our first parent. As soon as, in punishment for his sin, the sentence of death had been pronounced on him and his posterity, because thou hast eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat, Cursed is the earth in thy work, said the Lord. Just a little interjection for myself. You know, you look at this train explosion in East Palestine and then how they continued to burn these chemicals. And it just makes me realize, truly, cursed is the earth due to our sins. We continue to curse the earth. It's the Democrats who claim to love the environment, who have littered the planet in masks, who continue a 
burn that is now reaching as far as Washington, D.C. So you don't have to be uh, an environmentalist to realize sin truly is harming the earth. Ironically, it's just coming more from leftists than the uh, mean, grumpy right people. Um, but it shows that all sin leads to the destruction of the earth. God's punishment to Adam continues, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the earth out of which thou wast taken. For dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. But why did God add these last words, which do not increase in any way the punishment already given? It was doubtless to subdue and annihilate the pride of Adam, and inspire him with such deep humility as would dispose his heart to salutary penance. Thus we see that Adam, who had begun to excuse himself, answered not, but accepted the penance imposed and preserved in it, humble, penitent, and resigned for the long space of 900 years. God was pleased with this penance, and our first parent was saved by it through the merits of the, of the future Redeemer. So a few things right there. Notice that the old school Jesuits took the Bible literally, as did all religious orders in the 19th century when this was written. So we see that Adam was truly a penitent for 900 years on the earth. But that penance had to be connected to the cross, which is retroactive. For the cross, the blood of Jesus is the only thing that could save him. So it took two things. The infinite merits of the future Redeemer, who is actually in his bloodline, that is Jesus Christ, connected retroactively to Adam's own penance on the earth as he was super sorry for this sin for 900 years. Imagine doing penance for 900 years. But that's why he's saved also. That's why we know that he's in heaven. The application, the Jesuit writes, is we have sinned in Adam. We have sinned ourselves and are very guilty. We have great need of doing penance, of imploring pardon. God is ready to give it to us, but we have seen that the first feeling he asks in the heart of a sinner is humility and a conviction of his own unworthiness. The first disposition then into which we ought to try to enter in, which to preserve during Lent, that time of universal penance is a profound humility springing from the knowledge of our nothingness and our sins. It is this which should form the principal merit of our works of penance. And then the Jesuits have us enter into what's called affections and resolutions. So see this notion that we use our emotions and affections and even the colloquy, which is a discussion with God about our life, it's not just God's my buddy and we talk about whatever during my week, the primary approach is repentance for my sins, especially in Lent. And again, I'm recording this on Ash Wednesday, reading from the actual Jesuit meditation for Ash Wednesday. And just a couple more paragraphs before we get into the gospel today. But again, this is especially for those doing the meditation that it uses the imagination. That's the way of St. Teresa of Avila, the way of St. Ignatius. Point number two is second disposition requisite is compunction. That compunction is literally the piercing of the heart in sorrow for your own sins. Consideration. Remember, O man, that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. Who is it that utters again every year on this day the same words that God pronounced in the terrestrial paradise, our Holy Mother Church, by the mouth of her ministers? And to whom does she address them? To each of us, to all the faithful who assemble in the house of God. And at what moment? At the same moment when she places ashes on our foreheads, the emblem of death and penance, it is as if she said, O man, be thou who thou mayest, remember that thou must did and become like unto this, unto this dust because of sin. Remember that if thou dost not penance for thy sins, thou wilt only rise again from the dust of the tomb to pass in body and soul into a place of eternal torments. 
Application. The church obliges us to listen to those grave and terrific truths only to inspire us from the first day of Lent with holy and deep compunction. Compunction of heart is the second essential disposition for whoever desires to attain one of the principal ends of Lent, salutary penance. If our works of mortification and penance are accompanied by sentiments of true contrition and humility, they will be pleasing before God. For, says the royal prophet, a contrite and humbled heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Cor concitum Deus non dispiciens. If we are waiting in these dispositions, ought we not to fear that all the practices of Lent, even the most painful ones, will be of little use to us? And then we begin the colloquy with our Lord or the discussion with our Lord. So notice right there that you could do the most fantastic mortifications, but if you do not have humility and compunction, your Lent's going to be totally worthless. And this is why I love the Jesuit method. It's because you picture yourself in the garden with Adam and Eve. You picture that tremendous sorrow. You think of the worst mortal sin you've committed, and you ask God to enter into that same humility and compunction. That's how we take off. That's that's our launching point for Lent. And this is where the affections are actually important. Obviously, the will follows the intellect, but we want to have these emotions. This is what St. Ignatius recognized for us is humility and compunction of heart should spring from our intellect, our will, and our emotions. And this is what's beautiful about the imaginative way of prayer. And now as we look at the study way of prayer, also called Lexio Divina, that's again the name of the series video Lexio Divina, even though I think most of you listen to it on audio. Today, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, but because this is so tied to the last VLX, I'm going to briefly read you the last five verses from the last VLX. So what we're going to read is Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So what I just read you was from the English Standard Version. There's also the English Standard Version Catholic Edition. It's very similar to the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. That's what we use in our focus Bible studies. I know most of you are following in the Dewey Rhymes Bible. I love the fact you stick with tradition on that. But like today's another example why I am happy I'm using the ESV because donkey, if I'm going to read you Lapide without kind of the more modern translation, I'm going to have to say the word A-S-S numerous times, and a lot of you have kids listening, and it's just, they're, they can probably get that donkey equals A-S-S, but I'm going to read uh, as people in 2023 normally talk. Because, um, you know, Jesus did not speak in some, like, British accent uh, or speak in a way that sounded like Shakespearean English to us. 
Um, he was certainly God, and so we don't have to drag divinity to humanity like all these silly Protestant movies, but neither do we want to make it like he, sh he spoke Shakespearean English by analogy for where we are at. I do want to give you a little bit of the Greek here because there is a difference in whatever translation you're in. Why in the world was there both a donkey and a colt? Okay, so the word in Greek here is onos. O-N-O-S equals donkey, and that means full-grown. And then we have this word in Greek, which is polos, P-O-L-O-S, and that is a colt or a young donkey or a young horse. And so what's amazing is in verse 5, Christ rides both of these. And we're going to see what the church fathers have to say about this. Was, it, was this at the same time? Probably some scripture scholars go so far as to say it was only one and it was a mistake to write a, a donkey and a colt. But that's obviously false because there was truly a donkey and a colt here. But I'm not going to call donkey ASS, even though that's what your Dewey Rhymes Bible says, because we have kids listening and kids might find that kind of funny that a priest says that words numerous times in a podcast. So was there a donkey and a young donkey that Christ rode? Father Lapide says yes. He says, Christ sat upon the donkey as well as her colt in succession. That means one after the other. That means there really was a donkey and a young donkey, and Christ sat upon one and then the other, not both at the same time. Christ sat upon the donkey as well as her colt in succession, as I noted in Zacharias 9.9. Franz Lucas says that he first made use of the donkey, then of the colt. The colt, perhaps, was not strong enough to bear a rider in the descent and ascent of the mountain in the city. So notice right there that the, the first part of this trip is actually flat, and then coming into Jerusalem, it's more hilly. We kind of expect, you know, I'm making this podcast in the city limits of Denver. We kind of expect the opposite because just west of here, by a few gulf shots, is the foothills, but then the city of Denver is very flat. Well, it's quite the opposite. If you go from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jericho is very flat, where uh, Jerusalem has hills in it. So, Father Lapide says, the colt perhaps was not strong enough to bear a rider in the descent and ascent of the mountain in the city. But he rode into the city on the colt and then on the donkey. But it was chiefly because of the mystery implied that he willed to make use of both the beasts. He's talking about the mystery in Zechariah 9.9. Both animals are mentioned there. That he might signify that he should reign not over those only to whom he had been promised, that is, the Jews, but over the two sorts of people of which the world is made up, the Jews accustomed to the yoke of the Mosaic law, who were represented by the donkey, and the Gentiles living up to this time without the law of God, who were denoted by the colt. Okay, so Jesus rides in both of these. The donkey represents the Jews, and the young donkey, the colt, represents the Gentiles. Father Lapide continues, They covered the donkey with their garments, as with regal trappings, and they made Christ to sit thereon, that they might render him homage as the Messiah, and inaugurate his reign as King of Jerusalem. Christ willed, instigated, and directed it all, deciding to ride here, contrary to his custom, that he might give an idea of his kingdom, united, however, with poverty and humility, for which reason he rode upon a lowly and despised donkey. So notice Father Lapide is trying to get you to see the combination of the magnificence of his, of his divinity and the humility of his humanity, and that his kingdom encapsulates both of these. Father Lapide says, Christ wished to adorn his royal entrance into Jerusalem with this unaccustomed regal pomp for various reasons. 
The first was that he might give an indication of his royal power and magnificence because the Jews thought that he would come in such a manner, like another Solomon, and think so even now. Christ therefore presented himself to them with this appearance of pomp, that they might not despise and reject him as they had hitherto done, and yet by proofs of his humility and clemency he showed them that the messianic kingdom was spiritual rather than temporal, and he willed that all these things should be foretold by Zacharias. The second and accompanying reason was that Christ would present himself to the scribes and Pharisees in his royal entrance that they might, as they ought to, be able to recognize him by this means to be the Messiah promised and predicted by Zacharias in this passage. Listen to this. This is amazing what Father Lapide says. He says, Nevertheless, Christ knew that they would then be even more exasperated and plot his death on the cross, which he resolved to permit so that thus he might embrace the death which he so much desired and thereby redeem us. So what Father Lapide is saying is the Pharisees knew this was the Messiah. Through his glorious entrance, through the fulfilling of the prophecies, now they knew and they still all the more wanted to kill him. This really shows the nature of sin. We always kind of write off other people's sin thinking we're, we're merciful. And St. Benedict does say we should make excuses for other sins, ne- never our own sins. So there's a little truth to this, that we want to look at other sins and kind of come up with excuses. But there also comes a point where we have to imbibe common sense and say, wow, there's some people that are flying in the face of the truth purposefully, and they hate the truth, and they hate God. And this is exactly where the Pharisees are at at this point. Father Lapide continues, the third reason was that he might correspond to the type of the Paschal Lamb. For on the tenth day of the first month, it was brought with solemn pomp into the city that it might be sacrificed on the fourteenth day. So Christ, as the Lamb of God, says Father Lapide, which taketh away the sins of the world, entered into Jerusalem on the tenth day, or Palm Sunday, so as to be immolated on the fourteenth day. So tenth of Nisan, fourteenth of Nisan, Christ is truly the Lamb of God. He entered in pomp and with the auspicious declamations of the multitude since he was certain of triumphing over death, sin, hell, and the demons and so made his triumph to precede his battle and in triumph he entered upon his duel. Listen to that again. That's such a phenomenal line from Father Lapide. Christ entered in pomp and with the auspicious declamations of the multitude since he was certain of triumphing over death, sin, hell, and the demons and so made his triumph to precede his battle and in triumph he entered upon his duel. But in this, in this entry, Christ is totally detached from what any of his enemies then or now could claim would be some type of superficial vainglory. Of course, you and I know he doesn't have that, but he even makes it clear there's none of this in it. Father Lapide says, the fourth reason was tropological, that by this deed he might deride the world's glory and, and prove its vanity. For as much as he knew that the same people who so honored him at this entry would crucify him five days afterwards. Listen to that again. Christ knew that the same people who so honored him at this entry would crucify him five days afterwards, and that those who were now crying out, Hosanna, son of David, that is, long live the king, our Messiah, son and heir of David, would shout four days later before Pilate's judgment seat, crucify him, crucify him. You know, modern Catholics like to kind of exonerate all first century Jews and say, oh, no, these were different people. He had a bunch of people who were standing up for him, and then they were too afraid maybe to come out, and there's a different group of people that yelled to crucify him. But here Father Lapide, clearly in reflection of the church father, says, no, these were the same people. But this isn't some anti-Semitic 
thing of me because we have to realize that's exactly how Catholics act today um, is we – I really think the center of modernism is people want Jesus without the cross. If I really had to boil down modernism to – well, okay, it's three things. It's replacing the supernatural with the natural. It's replacing a God-centered religion with a human-centered religion. If I had to add a third definition of the heresy of modernism that is sadly to say 98% of the Catholics in the world today – it is they want Christ without the cross. And these are the same people that get ashes on their forehead, go to Mass on Sundays, and it's really all of our temptation, including me. We want the kingdom of Jesus without the cross. And this was why you had a group of people in the first century that yelled, Hosanna, Son of David, and then yelled to crucify Christ. It's the same people that we tell all these people, we're Catholics, and then we go and we commit a mortal sin and we crucify Christ. And there's real consequences to this, since Father Lapide's very next sentence is, therefore the city would be utterly destroyed by the Romans under Titus. Therefore, even in this joyful entry, foreseeing this, he wept, as Luke 19.41 says. Again, he would teach that his kingdom and glory and that of his followers consists in this life of suffering and the cross, and that we must not turn away from them, but embrace them and come to them with a joyful mind and with solemn pomp. Therefore, the martyrs, as followers of Christ, went rejoicing to their martyrdom as to a banquet. And let's look at verse 8. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, and others cut bows from the trees and strewed them in the way. Father Lapide says, At a royal inauguration, the squares are customarily spread with carpets, branches, and foliage in honor of the king. But this multitude, not having carpets, laid down their garments for Christ, divesting themselves as a great sign of respect and reverence for him. These things happen on the 20th of March, for in Palestine, which is a hot country, the trees are then in full leaf. On the 25th of March, Christ was crucified and died, that is, on the Friday following Palm Sunday. So keep in mind the church fathers say that the world was created on March 25th, the incarnation took place on March 25th, which is also the Annunciation, and in the first Good Friday was also fell on a March 25th. Verse 9, and the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. That is Messiah, whom as the king divine, we have been expecting ardently for so many thousand years. I've said this on this podcast before, but one of the things we need to be thankful for and not just take for granted is that you and I were born in the time of the new covenant. I mentioned earlier in this very podcast, Adam had to do 900 years of penance for his one mortal sin. Have you ever done 900 years of penance for a mortal sin you've confessed? And this is where we have to really grasp the longing of some of the Jews, the maybe inherent longing of certain Gentiles, and even the longing of all creation. Paul talks about this. All of creation was longing for this Messiah. Whom, as the king divine, says Father Lapide, we have been expecting ardently for so many thousand years. I also love when Father Lapide brings in the liturgy. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas, he often quoted the liturgy uh, before it was sprinkled with uh, Protestantism and Freemason topics. The liturgy for St. Thomas Aquinas is basically seen as almost an infallible proof. If you look at some of the said contras and the replies for St. Thomas Aquinas, the liturgy was so ancient and so connected to divine revelation, he could quote it as almost infallible. Same with Father Lapide here, and he, he ties Palm Sunday and her liturgy to this entrance. 
He writes, thus the church expounds when in the blessing of palms she chants, and this is a direct quote from the liturgy of, good, of Palm Sunday, therefore the branches of palms anticipate the triumph over the king of death, while the sprays of olives, as it were, cry aloud that the spiritual anointing is come, for even then that blessed multitude of people understood that if it was prefigured that the Redeemer, grieving for the misery of the human race, was about to fight with the Prince of Death for the life of the whole world and to triumph by dying, therefore they obediently rendered such services which should testify both to the triumphs of his victory and to the riches of his mercy. Notice right there that the palm is a sign of both martyrdom and triumph for the early church. For although the multitude did not know that in four days on the Passover, Christ would triumph upon the cross over sin, death, the devil, and hell, he knew it, that is, Christ knew it, and therefore Christ willed that this, his triumph, should be foreshadowed by the multitude with palms, and that openly and with solemn pomp, Indeed, on the fifth day before the feast of Passover, on which the great multitude, which gathered from all sides in Jerusalem to celebrate it, would proceed in a great throng to Bethphage to lead out the paschal lambs which were to be immolated and eaten in Jerusalem for the Pasch, which fell that year on Thursday evening. Hence this inauguration of Christ as the King of Judea was celebrated gloriously with zeal and devotion by a great retinue of people. And they brought Christ as the Lamb which taketh away the sins of the world, who is to be sacrificed on the cross for its salvation upon the following Friday. So notice that this is VLX, and we are on Palm Sunday as I record this on Ash Wednesday. But all through Lent, we will have a chance to enter into these five days. We are in Palm Sunday in the VLX series, but Ash Wednesday in the recording. But it's going to be five days between Palm Sunday and Good Friday as we follow Jesus through Jerusalem. Father Lapidus says, All these customs were carried out in accordance with the law, see Exodus chapter 12, verse 3 and 6, which commands that the paschal lamb be chosen on the tenth day of the first month and prepared for the sacrifice on the fourteenth. The tenth of Nisan, the first month, fell that year on Palm Sunday, which was according to our computation the twelfth of March. And he notices the differences because we use solar months while the Jews reckoned lunar months. So the point is that the Paschal Lamb is being chosen today, Palm Sunday, the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, and the chosen Lamb is Christ himself. And for the last section of today's podcast, let's just look at the Hebrew of this word, Hosanna. Father Lapidus says this is an acclamation to the Messiah as the new king of Israel, as an inauguration, as we say, long live the king, God save the prince. He connects this to Psalm 117, verse 24. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Thus, Christ being rejected by the Jews in life and crucified in death became the cornerstone of the church after his resurrection as containing and connecting the whole edifice of the church by uniting both Jews and Gentiles in the one bosom of his church. And thus it is that we sing and pray Hosanna to him. Uh, elsewhere, Father Lapide basically says Hosanna means please Lord save or King, please save us. We also hear this word to the son of David, Hosanna to the son of David. And Father Lapide says Hoska means save and it signifies here save us Christ and at the same time cause that he should save his subjects so that in truth even as Christ is called 
so he may verily be Jesus, the Savior of the world. For Jesus, the word, is derived from yaska, which is he has saved, which in hifil, the action being augmented, he's just talking about a declination of Hebrew there, makes the word hoska. For this reason, the translator gives filio David. Filio is to the son, not of the son. Filio is the dative, meaning to the son of David. Whereas otherwise, it would be translated filium David in the accusative. For the dative signifies that God gave Christ salvation. When you hear dative in English or Latin, you should just be thinking that means to something. It's towards something. So why wasn't this salvation towards the son of David? Why was it to the son of David? And it's because the power of saving all men is something proper to him alone. It usually, it can often have to do with what belongs to somebody. And so this is a salvation that belongs to Christ to give to all of his faithful followers. Christ is as the glorious, powerful, and triumphant king installed in Jerusalem that he might restore their fallen kingdom, yes, even perfected. And instead of its being earthly, make it heavenly instead of human, divine, instead of temporal, eternal. Christ triumphed on the cross over sin, over the world, over the devil, over hell, and delivered all nations from their power as far as he was concerned and subjugated them. Now, when it says as far as he was concerned, that doesn't mean there was something lacking in his power or the infinite merits of his precious blood. It just means that some people will reject this kingdom and go to hell. But for those who accept this kingdom of both glory and the cross and humility and compunction that we talked about earlier, you will have an everlasting kingdom with your body and your soul in what both Isaiah and the book of the apocalypse describe as a new heavens and a new earth. Not just a new heavens, a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 10, and when he came into Jerusalem, the whole city was moved, saying, who is this? Father Lapide summarizes that as if to say, who with so great honor, applause, congratulation, as it were to the king of Israel, enters into, into Jerusalem, while the scribes and Pharisees are looking on, indeed, the Roman soldiers of Tiberius Caesar, who would not suffer another Caesar to be called king of Judea, therefore Christ, now bearing himself as king, would have come into peril of death. So what Father Lapide is saying right here is, yes, now Jesus is admitting he is the king and he becomes a real threat to the Pharisees and to the Caesars of the world. And then finally, verse 11, and the people said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Father Lapide says, he is the Messiah, the king of Israel. Why from Nazareth? For although Jesus was born at Bethlehem, yet he was brought up in Nazareth. Christ, by this glory of his, gave occasion to his death, for the scribes being stirred up by it to envy and hatred of him, after four days crucified him. In truth, God, foreknowing all things, arranged all these things, in part positively, in part permissively, that from them he might elicit greater good, namely the redemption of the world, to be accomplished by the death of Christ. The malice, therefore, of the scribes fulfilled the counsel and decree of God concerning the death of Christ, and the redemption of the world. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio Deum nepotentis, Patris et Filii, et Spiritus Santi, descendet super vos, et mani et semper, Amen.